Hello from Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome no, to the Nation <laughs> Lab. Wait, leave it, leave it. Are no. We still going? Come on. Leave it. Don't, right, don't stop. All right, all right. All right. We'll leave it. <laughs> Hello from Washington, D.C., and welcome to the live episode 100 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. But today we're hosted by American University Washington College of Law. It's Wednesday, November 14th. I'm Bobby Chesney. Uh, I'm Steve Vladek. According to Ann Coulter, I am the New York Times go-to guy on everything uh, that Trump does is just like Watergate. It's going to be hard to put on the back of your jersey. <laughs> True. And who are you? I'm Jen Daskal, and I'm so excited to have you all here and to welcome Steve and Bobby to Washington, D.C. for the 100th episode of this great podcast. Woohoo! And you all guys right. are here. We have an audience. We have an audience. Now, if you are listening at home, you're probably wondering how we manufactured that sound effect of people clapping. Um, Thank you, YouTube. Indeed. Um, so, Bobby, why are we here? Uh, well, we, you and I uh, realized around the 95th episode that we did have an anniversary coming up, and that would be an occasion to, I don't know. Uh, buy each other presents? Buy each other Travel? I didn't get you anything. Did you get me anything? I got you directions. I got you pizza. Uh, all right. All right. I got uh, you pizza. Uh, that's true. <laughs> So we were both going to be in D.C. We realized today I, I did an event earlier uh, and do another event later, both on the topic of deep fakes, which I've been writing about. Um, what brings you here? Um, pizza. You <laughs> just came from a long way for this pizza. No, and, uh, and there's an event tonight at the Georgetown Center for National Security Law, National Security and the Law, you know, and you're whatever. Giving, you're giving a keynote? I'm giving a keynote. And so, you know, while I was here, I figured come up to my old stomping grounds. So then we, we had to engineer, we got out the calendars and engineered the dates, thus the three-part deep dive on FISA that's been part of our recent episodes to try to throttle the, the sequence and we'd end up with 100 this week. And then it occurred to us, well, we can't just like be like buskers on the corner just sitting out the microphones on the street. We need to actually be indoors somewhere. Uh, and we thought, hey, Jen, what you doing on the 14th? And happily, you're not teaching during lunchtime. I'm not teaching during lunchtime. Well, so. Thanks. Thank you, Jen, for coming. Uh, thank you, Jen, for joining us. Thank you, Jen, for saving us for only the second time in our history from being a mantle. So that's all right. Uh, that's right. Good development. We're um, two percent. We are two. That's right. Two out of a hundred. I can do that now. Yes. Um, so you know, you had told us, told everybody that was going to come to this to be very specific about the directions. I had coming here. We had talked about the that. two, the two different. How'd campuses. that go? Yeah. So this other campus was really neat. I got a nice tour of it. I really liked it. AKA the campus I told you not to go to. I, in my defense, I told the cab driver exactly what I should have told him. And that was he, your first mistake. Yeah, and he said, like, no, this is it, this is it. And so I called Steve from uh, in front of the public affairs school in the business school. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's not the right campus. And, he said, and it's just three blocks away. You walk. Well, it's, it's this is a really long blocks. It is three blocks, though. It's, it's just three long blocks. blocks. It's more than three blocks. How many intersections Thank are there? Okay, anyway, this is Jen's right. <laughs> the well, pizza guy went there, too. Um, validation. <laughs> Do as the pizza guy does. All right, so why don't we tell people what we're actually going to talk about on this episode besides how we got here and why we're starting late. Yeah, you want to do the run of show? Sure. So we have a couple of topics. Um, fortunately, the news gods have blessed us with things to talk about. Um, apparently, there was an election. No kidding. I heard. I heard. I heard on Twitter um, that that you know the election was over Tuesday night. Nothing's happened since then. Um, you know, I knew it was an election because uh, you know in Texas we had a pretty exciting race between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. True. And by the time I got here from walking those three blocks, I'm wearing a blue button now and I was sweating like Beto O'Rourke at the end of it. <laughs> you know, I could make so many jokes right now that would all be inappropriate, and I'm just going to say uh, Travis County voted for Beto seventy-five twenty-five. 
and I'm glad to live in Travis County. So out of, I don't know if you guys saw this data, but out of state, people who are not native Texans like myself um, were a majority for Ted Cruz and native Texans majority for Beto O'Rourke. Fascinating. Mm, I am not a native Texan. Yeah, and so, so explain, <laughs> explain yourself, sir. <laughs> All right, so wait, what are we going to talk about? All right, so we're going to talk about the uh, potential implications of last week's election for our field. Okay. Um, and especially the potential shape of the new congressional oversight functions we might expect to see in the 116th Congress. Um, we have a bunch of litigation updates, um, which ironically all have to do with the D.C. Circuit. Um, so when in Rome... Talk about their courts? Talk about their courts, that's right. Um, we also have... Um, I was going to say one. Could that, could that be episode title? Talk about our courts? No. Winning around. Just talk about their courts? Eh. We'll, we'll let them pick. Yeah, later. yeah. We'll yeah, get to it. We'll, we'll do episode title later. So, right. so little little secret, guys. Like the episode title is almost never well. It is never planned. Um, we're lucky enough when we actually remember the ones we come up with in the middle of the episode. Usually, what happens is Bobby's running out of the office, out of my office, where we usually record because he's late to go somewhere. It's like, what should the title be? And whatever we come up with in those 10 seconds is the title. So that's the deep, you know, principled thought process that goes in our episode title. So maybe we'll try something better today. Yeah. All right. Uh, litigation developments. We have, I was going to say, one important new OLC opinion, but actually as of 10 o'clock this morning, two <laughs> important new OLC opinions. Nice. One about um, war powers and the president's authority to use military force against ISIS, and one about the uh, legality of the appointment of Matthew Whitaker to be the acting attorney general. Will be a good pivot from war powers to what you and I like to call Trumplandia. Trumplandia. It's been a busy week. We're here. Um, in, we're in, this is Trumplandia. I think we're all always. I was going to say, I, I feel like Trumplandia, I, Austin's not like. Trumplandia is a state of mind. <sighs> That's the, write that down. Possibility. No, you know what we should do for the show title? So I, I brought some t shirts. And so we will. Why do you take, think that away? You just spoiled your best, like. This you know, is the best appointment of it. I've been waiting. We got. I got some T-shirts to give away, and I think we'll give one to uh, whoever gives us the best uh, episode title. Best episode title, and then the other one actually is for Jen for hosting us. So Jen, oh, thank you. I didn't bring you something. Do you want orange or gray? Orange. You, here, okay, so first. Woohoo! If you, by the way, um, if you can't tell what all of this ooing and aahing is, Bobby is holding up. These beautiful. And they have pockets. Ooh, I like the gray. That uh, is awesome. uh, Some qualifications for our day job, zero qualifications for everything else. Sounds about right. Th that uh, sounds perfect. This one's a uh, small. This Do we need to be doing this on the air? Yes. It's all part of the Great, great. I like great? the pocket. Awesome. Yes. Thank all right. You. This one will be given away later. All right. So if you pick the episode title, you get a t shirt. We only brought one t shirt, though. This is not like an everybody gets a t shirt. Would you not cover the microphone? Are we use that one? <laughs> We're not using that one. So they can hear in the back. Ah. All right. All right. Um, and then when we're done with Trumplandia, assuming that anyone is still here and that we actually still have any energy, we have some Disney-related frivolity because I have no idea what the connection to DC is for Disney other than that Jen just went there. And you're going. And I'm going. That's enough. All right. So why don't we start at the top with da -da -da -da, the elections? All right. So uh, the big takeaway, of course, is that the Democrats have taken the House, and that means for the first time in the Trump administration, there will be congressional oversight. Congressional oversight mechanisms are going to come into play. Um, Steve and Jen, we could talk about both the subject matter areas that will be a focal point for the House majority to dig into. But there's it, so many. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> basically nothing that's not on that list. So let's cherry pick what uh, you guys think might be some of the key issues that we should expect to see. Not legislative initiatives, that's not what we're talking about here, but witnesses, documents, uh, 
you know, that kind of oversight hardball. Russia, the elections. War powers. War powers. Um, Mueller. Uh, family separation at the border. Um, asking a citizenship question on the census. Uh, finances, tax returns, um, the 17 different scandals involving the current Secretary of the Interior. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's literally a list. Hiring and firing. Like Axios, Ax Axios, Ax I have no Axios. idea how to call it, right? They had the list that the Republicans were circulating of like all the things that, it's like the House Democrats are like, oh, thanks, you did our homework <laughs> for us. Um, I think it might be more helpful to go by committee. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, which committees are going to be the most important ones and who's, gonna, who's likely to be based on who's currently the ranking? member who's likely to take the uh, the reins of each of those committees. So my reaction, and I'm curious, Jen, what you think, is that there's a big four, um, right, that the big four for our universe, and this is not true for everybody, um, is going to be judiciary, um, intelligence, armed services, and oversight, you know, uh, government reform and oversight, um, right, and that some combination of those four committees are going to be where most of the movement on the topics near and dear to our podcast is going to take place. Um, so judiciary, that probably means Jerry Nadler as mm -hmm. chairman. Um, intelligence, that probably means Adam Schiff yeah. as chairman. Um, armed services, I think it means Adam Smith mm -hmm. as chairman. Mm -hmm. um, and government reform and oversight, Elijah Cummings. Okay. And all I can say is, um, whoa, Nelly. <laughs> yeah. Like, buckle up. Um, so there are going to be subpoenas of documents. Yes, there will be fights over who's going to testify and when. But I think the flashpoints that come earliest and quickest will be documents, including you know tax return requests. When it's documents, well, let's talk about the inevitable assertion of executive privilege to prevent the production of the or to explain the non-production of those documents. Um, what are the meets and bounds that are settled on when that's appropriate to invoke, and where are the gray areas where inevitably all the fights are going to come? I'd say most of it's gray. Um, so I think uh, a lot like of it. Like your T-shirt. Exactly, just like my T-shirt. Um, so I mean, I think we will see lots and lots of claims um, and lots of lots of questionable claims. Um, the areas where it's the greatest, the, the president has the greatest authority to claim privilege will be questions about conversations with the president, attorney-client type relationships, um, agency deliberations, um, anything dealing with an open criminal investigation. Um, tax returns prior to the president in office, I don't see where in the world he gets to claim privilege, but he will. When they're well, they try to. Yeah. yeah. But I think you're right about that. I don't, I don't see any grounds for withholding them if they're if they're requested properly. Uh, but I mean, properly. The, the process is going to matter here, right? Because I mean, asserting privilege is just a formal thing you do, right? And then someone has to resolve whether the assertion of the privilege is legitimate or not. And that leads us to Fed courts. Dun, 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 dun. I'm teaching Fed courts in the spring, and I'm trying to figure out like just how much of my syllabus I now have to throw out and be like, Fed courts, aka subpoena enforcement uh, <laughs> uh, authority. Well, give us give us the warm up. What are the rules of the road when the executive branch says, nope, uh, the initiative vents back on the committee? Does the committee have to act collectively? Can the chair act? And what is it they'd be acting to do? Is it uh, is it a referral to the Justice Department? Because I don't think that's going to work very well. All right, so there are a lot of questions there. Yes. Um, let me try to take them one at a time. So so first and most importantly, um, it is up to the majority of each – well, first, the House sets its own rules. Um, and one of the interesting things that the Republicans did early in the 115th Congress was take away the requirement on at least some of the committees that subpoenas could only issue with at least some consent from the minority. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the Democrats will very happily um, readopt that rule, um, such that all it will take is a majority vote of the committee 
um, to issue a subpoena. And just about certainly the four committees we discussed will all have subpoena power. Mm -hmm. Whether other committees will or not, I think, is a separate issue. Um, once the subpoena issues, presumably the privilege will be asserted. One of the things we saw during the Trump administration was non-privileged privilege, um, where you get a, a, a witness would say, um, I'm not answering. And the chair would say, is that because you're invoking executive privilege? And say, uh, no, uh, I don't have the authority to do that. And then the chair would be like, all right, cool. Um, yeah, that won't work. This that won't time. work this time. So once there's a privilege assertion, you know, then the question becomes: Do you hold the individual in contempt, um, or do you try to litigate the privilege claim first? Um, there's some precedent now for doing contempt and then litigating the privilege claim. So there's um, the Harriet Myers case from 2008. There's the Eric Holder case from 2012, arising out of Fast and Furious, where um, individual committees. Um, so in the Myers case, it was House Judiciary, can go to federal court and try to get a declaratory judgment that the contempt citation is valid because the privilege claim is invalid. Um, and indeed, that's what happened in the Harriet Myers case, at least in the district court, very lengthy ruling from Judge Bates. Then we get to the real problem, which you previewed, which is, all right, so you've got a contempt citation. You've got a court ruling saying that the assertion of privilege to not comply with the subpoena was invalid. What happens next? Congress has two choices. The first is inherent contempt, um, which is the old school lock the guy in the old Capitol jail until he complies with the subpoena or that session of Congress ends. Don't really see that happening. Would the sergeant at arms yeah. literally be tasked with go, go find? This happened. I mean, if you read, there are some really awesome Congressional Research Service reports about this. Um, Andy Wright has written a bit about this. Josh Chaffetz from Cornell Law School has written about this. Like, there are examples in the 19th century of like people being thrown in the old Capitol jail for contempt. We don't really do that sort of thing anymore. Um, since 1857, there's been a criminal contempt of Congress statute, um, which sounds great, but it has to be enforced by the Justice Department. And so the scenario that I think we could get to rather quickly is a litigated privilege claim that fails, a contempt citation, a DOJ referral, and then a refusal to prosecute. Yay. Can they, what about mandamus? Could you use mandamus to force prosecution? I think not. No. I mean, well, you could try. Um, but, you know, I, I, even I think that the um, president of the United States has the discretion to not enforce the criminal law, um, right, as he chooses. Now, mind you, you might think it is politically inappropriate, perhaps even obstruction of justice, um, to instruct the attorney general to not bring contempt prosecutions of your own executive branch officials for refusing to comply with duly issued subpoenas of the United States Congress. But then we're back in the exact same conversation, which is, is there enough momentum in Congress to pursue the political remedies as opposed to the legal remedies would be available at that point? And there might be now. I mean, so that's, that's the- In one branch. Right, in one branch. So um, we talked about oversight, but the other thing that we could see is the beginnings of an impeachment hearing. Yeah, so is that wise or unwise to pursue that course since it, there's no way it's going to come out as a conviction in the Senate? Shrug emoji. <laughs> Shrug emoji. No, I mean, listen, you know, certainly I think Myers, Speaker Pelosi, Speaker, um, soon to be Speaker, I think Pelosi. Maybe. Maybe. All right. Maybe, yeah. Minority Leader Pelosi, um, I think that's, no one's yelling at me for that one, right? Um, has said that, that impeachment is not on the agenda as of right now. Right? The question is whether things are going right. to unfold, whether from the Mueller investigation or from subpoenas or from other events that have yet to occur that might make it far more attractive, at least to the House Judiciary Committee, 
Um, and I think you know that's going to be messy, but it's hard to know until we see the you know the facts. So we could see impeachment as as yet another option um, now that the Democrats have control of the House. All right. So that that obviously could only go as far as the House would not possibly in, unless we have extremely. I mean, dramatic something dramatic would have to change to get like seven. You know, to get. Um, 20 Republican senators, yeah. right, to, to think, I mean, right. um, now so, there was a, there was an audience question about whether career officials at DOJ would nevertheless be inclined, like the U.S. attorney for D.C., yeah. well, not it's not a career official, but like other career officials would nevertheless be inclined to try to enforce um, to, or to try to pursue so referrals. criminal division would have to. But the problem is, is that like the criminal divisions run by, you know, someone appointed by President Trump, right, the acting attorney well, and general. The, and the U.S. And the US right. attorney in, in any of these locations. So then there's a unlikely. question as to whether or not it could be it could be kind of sent out to U.S. attorney's offices. Yeah, but which which U.S. attorney is going to pursue that? I mean, it's possible. I suppose there are a few. I, all, all of this is just to say, I, I think we are heading. I, I don't know which flashpoint it's going to be. I don't think I'm going out on a particular limb when I say that there's a flashpoint coming. And it's going to be over the executive branch's refusal to comply with a duly issued subpoena in the face of a judicial ruling that the privilege claim is invalid. No question. And there will be, it'll, but it'll ultimately be just about the politics because there's no scenario in which someone right. has it enforced through criminal prosecution. Right. Even if even if there was a U.S. attorney off, out there that's willing, that has the case and is willing to pursue They'll it, the pardon, right. well, the pardon power is the easiest way to oh, make that the whole one. thing go away. So yeah, but, but, I mean, but guys, but the political theater matters. I mean, it's so, not, I'm not irrelevant. It doesn't, yeah. So the political theater matters, but also contempt is not the only power Congress has. I mean, right, so among other things, we could see, you know, I mean, yes, executive branch officers can refuse to testify at hearings, but like maybe people want to testify, right? I mean, that's, you know, people who leave government might want to, um, for example, the career DOJ lawyers who resigned from the Justice Department right before the government flipped its position in the Affordable Care Act litigation in Texas. The House Judiciary Committee might want to hear from them. No, there's no question. There, there's all sorts of testimonial uh, political wounds that can be inflicted that will be meaningful and will inform us on a variety of important matters. Um, and, we, the, and the yeah. political, I mean, just the, the executive continuing to refuse to turn over information that everybody agrees is validly and has to be turned over and a court says needs to be turned over, right. that doesn't necessarily play well so, over the outside of Trump's base. My favorite thing that got no attention this week is um, Jerry Nadler sent a letter to, um, I think it was addressed to, it might have been addressed to Acting Attorney General Whitaker. Basically, the House um, Democrats on the Judiciary Committee have made like over 100 requests for information to the executive branch that have all been ignored. And Nadler basically said, hey, remember me? I'm about to be the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, and these things that used to be requests are about to be commands. Again, though, they could continue to ignore them. And at the end of the rope, there's not a lot of coercion behind it. So the, to your point about Congress having other powers, contempt isn't contempt will be exciting, and it will, it will be part of narrative building and so forth. But what actually matters, if they really want to make something stick, isn't going to be contempt. It's right. going to be refusing to act on, say, an appropriation matter. Right, a must-pass, right. like not raising the debt ceiling, right? right? right. Must-pass spending legislation. How is the Mueller protection bill ever going to get enacted? Right. Only if it's added as an amendment to the debt ceiling bill, right? I mean, like, right. that's... Uh, they'll sh shut the government down before but that's But that's where this is going. And I think the real question is, as it has been, now it's going to be even more obviously about, you know, depending upon what happens in Florida, three or four Republican senators. Um, and, you know, the Democrats in the House are going to be able to, I think, do quite a, make a lot of noise and develop a lot of information. But just how effective they are is going to depend upon whether they're able to attract on any of these issues 
um, at least what remains of moderate Republicans in the Senate. So I, that's true for proactive legislation. So that's true for like the Mueller the Mueller protection bill. But Obviously. also confirmations. I mean, what if, like what if what if three or four yep. Republican senators start saying, "I'm not confirming anybody until you do X." So absolutely. So confirmations, proactive legislation. But the, even if you don't have those three or four Republicans, there is still a lot the House can do. As Bobby was saying, yeah. they can they can block funding bills. They can block all substantive bills. They can just muck up the works. They can write reports. On just about everything. They yep. can write reports. They can they have they have a they they have a platform to bring witnesses in and put on national TV as they just sit there mutely. Um, the House Intelligence Committee could choose to release um, various things that the House Intelligence Committee has not thus far chosen to release. So I think we're in for a really rough ride in the next two years. You um, say rough, I say I say um, scholarship and podcast uh, perpetuating. There's much grist coming for the mill. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, because historically the Democrats have tended to take the position that we're not going to play as hardball as the Republicans. Yeah, I think, it, I think the bloom is off that yeah. rose. I mean, I, think, I, mean I, I really do think, like, I mean, I, I, I say this not aspirationally, but just as a reflection of what's happened in the last couple of years. Like, you know, judicial nominations, right? I think we've, we've abandoned the pretext that there was deep, high-minded principle behind this, right? Um, you know, um, it's all about whether you have the votes. And the reality now is that at least in one branch of government, the Democrats do have the votes. And so long as whoever ends up speaker is able to keep the Democrats generally in line. I mean, I think, just one last thing, I think the margin in the House actually is relevant because the fact that the Democrats can end up with either somewhere between 229, 232 seats means that you don't just have to, you don't have to keep the craziest outlier in line, right? You just have to make sure that you don't lose 13, 14 members. Right. Um, and that's very different from two or three. So it's, I, I largely agree, but I think the impeachment debate kind of puts, like, makes this clear. So there was, clearly no problem in the 1990s with the Republicans going through with impeachment. But you have Pelosi saying we're gonna, not going to do this because she's worried about the political consequences. I was going to say, like, it's not at all wise and obvious that it's wise from the Democrats' political point of view to Absolutely. pursue what will not, actually, will not actually take him out, That's right. but will become an, a, a rallying cry that will get out the vote for him in 2020. That's, I mean, this is, the, this is the delicate balance that the Democrats are going to have to walk. I'll just say that I think the Democrats are going to be a lot happier navigating that tightrope than having two more years where they had no rope at all. Um, Without right, so there you go. All right, um, should we pivot to the things we actually know about, which is like <laughs> litigation and court let's, stuff? And let's do it. Law? All right, so why don't we go back to one of our sustaining members who's still with us <laughs> and will always be with us. Uh, the, the military commissions and the Nishiri... 10 layer or 50 layer dip what is it now how many layers have we got? I, I, the, the layers are the layers are collapsing upon themselves the, the singularity is swallowing the layers whole so we've had some recent developments do they do they simplify or add further complexity what's going on in this yes. uh, what's going yes. so I, I don't have to start at the beginning do I no no just give us the all right so so we are still mid like ethics kerfuffle. Um, over whether Nashiri's uh, old lawyers, including his learned counsel, were entitled to resign over the discovery of a legacy microphone in a meeting room with him and their inability to investigate that and to advise him of that. Um, the Court of Military Commission Review said no, um, what, a couple weeks ago. Um, there's presumably um, that is going to be appealed in, in due course. What is gumming up the works at the moment is there is the separate... Um, litigation over whether Judge Spath, who until a couple months ago, well, until about a month ago, had been the trial judge um, and is now an immigration judge, um, which means he's employed by, oh, I don't know, the Department of Justice, 
um, should have had to recuse from participating in at least some of the rulings he handed down while he was actively seeking employment from one of the parties before him in the litigation. Um, the, the Shiri brought that claim to the CMCR. Um, the CMCR, in my best example of a hubristic opinion in the history of the federal courts, said, oh, you should have brought that to the trial court. Um, <laughs> the trial court, which had abated proceedings, right? The, there was no trial court in which to have brought that claim, but he failed to bring it to the trial court. Um, so Nishiri has now petitioned for mandamus. If you are scoring at home, this is now the fourth separate mandamus petition by Nishiri himself and the fifth in Nishiri. Um, and we're still pre-trial. I mean, this is, you know, we're going to set records. Um, and the mandamus petition in the D.C. Circuit says, listen, I'm entitled to a ruling now about whether there was, whether Judge Spath should have disqualified because that's going to affect the shape of everything, even if I lose on the merits of the abatement appeal. Um, Sorry. No, please. Okay. Um, the development that sort of happened late last week was Nishiri also asked the D.C. Circuit for a stay of everything that's going on while the D.C. Circuit sorts out the Judge Spath disqualification fight. Um, and I think last Thursday or Friday, the D.C. Circuit said, yep, everything is stayed, um, which led one of our, our Twitter followers to, to ask, wait a second. Was the abatement stayed, or was the unabatement stayed, or what was stayed? So let me try to sort of explain this. Everything is stayed. There is no al-Nashiri proceeding right now other than the appeal in the D.C. Circuit of the Judge Bath recusal issue. How's that? I want to show of hands in the room uh, how many people think that Nashiri's case will actually go to trial on the merits within the next two years. All right, there are no hands up. In <laughs> but the you got to give a little time. Two about, years, that's pretty. What about the 9-11 case? 9-11 case, KSM's case. There's a hearing right now. There's a Ongoing. Oh, there's a hearing yeah. every week there. No, there isn't. No. Um, and the hearing actually this week is about whether the firing of uh, convening authority Hari Rishikoff and his legal advisor, Gary Brown, mm -hmm. um, were unlawful command influence requiring either dismissal of the charges or at least some other kind of punitive sanction. So... Everything's going great with the Guantanamo Military Commission. I found uh, the other day I was trying to find an old article I'd written in, uh, for Jeff Korn in the South Texas uh, College of Law Review. And I was trying to recover some point I thought I'd made there, and I, I found the abstract online. I, I kind of opened it up to have a look, and the opening line said something almost exactly like this. You know, with the, in light of the election of President Barack Obama, it is all but certain that the military commissions will soon be shut down. <laughs> And they were for three months. For three months. I, I just neglected to say that part. They'll be shut down. And then 10 years later, we'll still be going in pretrial. Uh, I, I will say so. so in 16 years, eight convictions. Three of which have been fully reversed on appeal. Two One, of which have been partially yeah. reversed on appeal. In, in, I may have said this on the show previously, but in, in 2009, I was uh, when Obama got inaugurated, uh, later that spring, uh, I was asked by uh, now General Mark Martins to come work for him on Detention Policy Task Force. And I, I was teaching national security law at UT. Yeah, it's, that's what, and Jen was on the team too, and uh, we had a way and to Karen babysat for you. That's that was my Karen babysat before they had kids. It's all seamless web. Nate Jones was there. A bunch of bunch of terrific folks. My last class before I moved up to Washington, we were. It was the last class of national security law, and we were supposed to spend a day on the finals. And I chopped it all back, thinking like, well, you know, what is there even to say? And then it was the last day, and I got in there. I said, you know what, y'all, <laughs> they're going away in like ah! any time now, so never mind. You won't be tested on the commissions. We're just dropping that from the syllabus. And I was like, bye-bye. And uh, I, the next day, I fly to D.C. that night. The next morning, I, I show up for work. Uh, 
I don't know if you were in the meeting. Marty Lederman was there. A bunch of people were meeting. It's my first session down the hall from our office. And the subject, to my amazement, the subject of the meeting was the planning on the Military Commissions Act of 2009. 2009. Yep. I could not believe it. All I'll say is folks who have listened to enough of our episodes know that Bobby and my predictive abilities are <laughs> on lock. Right? I mean. <laughs> I've, I've been okay on sports this year, I feel like. You've really gone out on a limb. I mean, the limbs you've gone out. Okay, anyway. Yeah. How's that Texas football team doing? Great. Welcome. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all, right. all right. So all this is to say um, that the DC. So we. This is this is basically in some regards a rerun of litigation that happened earlier this year over the effort by two of Nashiri's former slash now back on kind of maybe civilian lawyers about whether they had a right to intervene. Where as soon as the case got to the DC Circuit, the DC Circuit was like, "Oh, we want everything." Right? Like, we want to figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, the government changed its litigation posture and made the case go away. Um, in the context of deciding the SPATH disqualification issue, the DC Circuit may have to confront a pretty decent chunk of the dip. Um, Which I think would be wonderful. I mean, I, we've said on the show many times, I think we share this, the CMCR maybe makes sense in theory, but in practice, it's, it's well established now. It's merely a way station that slows down the process and isn't actually adding value. How about that? Do you, do you agree? Yes, I'm chuckling because there may or may not be a CMCR judge sitting in this room. I, it's, it's on the record. This is how I feel about <laughs> no, it. No, listen. These issues he knows all, how I feel, too. They all end up at the D.C. Circuit. It would be much better if we could get resolution sooner rather than later. It's, uh, it's a shame that it's taken as long as it has, but the, the record speaks for itself. It just takes too long. But nothing you just said is meant in any way to try to lobby or unduly influence the efforts of the judge who may or may not be hearing you. I, I don't really have a dog in, in the fight to the same extent, perhaps, as you do. I, 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 I do not represent you know. Nishiri. I am not currently part of the litigation. I'm very happy about that. Well, right. and, and as you know, I'm, I'm actually a supporter of the idea of the military commissions. I actually think they have a really important role to play. Um, Still? Not this particular iteration, but the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way. This matter. In, in, in a deployment situation, it is important as a gap-filling jurisdictional vehicle, there needs to be military commissions as an option in some context. That is a totally different kind of military commission. Indeed it is. Here. Indeed it is. So, right. we're, so we're in agreement then. Okay, so I want to mention a case, this may or may not be in the order, but I want to mention a case that's uh, also one that probably isn't going to get to the merits. Um, and this is the DNC's lawsuit against various Russian entities for the 2016 hack. And uh, Ellen Nakashima had a good piece yesterday uh, drawing attention to the fact that the Russians have made a non-appearance uh, appearance uh, raising some Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act questions. And I think it's actually quite fascinating. It shines a spotlight on some important issues at the intersection of, uh, of privacy, of, of information operations, covert action, and, and issues that have a, t a double edge to them, because these pertain to what might be done to our own intelligence agencies and actors in other courts. Um, so I don't know if everybody's following this. Or, uh, you may have heard there was an election in 2016. There was some Russian activity. You, I've seen nodding heads. All right. So, uh, so DNC has filed suit and raising various uh, claims. And the obvious obstacle to these, uh, for the, any way to the merits, is the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which as a general proposition, as a default rule, makes it uh, impossible to sue a foreign sovereign without its consent through waiver. Um, but then it has all these exceptions in it. So there's a commercial torts exception, and there's a non-commercial torts exception. And the complaint is drafted with some care to try to try to get through those wickets. 
the Russians have submitted a letter to the court. It's kind of fascinating. It makes a variety of arguments. I just want to touch on a few. Uh, Steve or Jen, have either of y'all looked into this one I, as well? I looked at yeah. Yes. So um, just to enumerate some of the key arguments, they say, first of all, and I think most strikingly, but ultimately less significantly than the other arguments, they say, uh, you're talking about the action, they're talking about the GRU, you're talking about the actions of a military entity. That's military activity. It can't be subject to the commercial exception. Now, I think that's too strong. That's not right. It may be right as applied in this case, but it cannot be the case that if the entity involved was in fact a military entity, it's just like, well, forget it. There's no way it's commercial. You have to look at the thing done and make a judgment about the thing and not focus too much not that it's irrelevant. Right, but although I do think they have a decent argument, at least on that exception. So, if the mil so, so I mean, when I, I clicked on the Ninth Circuit, actually, the very first case I ever had was a case about a bar fight um, between a member of Her Majesty's uh, 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 military forces um, and one of our own, uh, and a military contract, a U.S. military contractor in Seattle, um, which, by the way, I should tell you what circuit we were in. Um, and and the, the whole point was like, no, the United Kingdom's foreign sovereign immunity does not mean you can sue the United Kingdom because one British soldier got into a bar fight. Well, and so there's an issue of is the entity who did the harmful act, is that somebody for whom the state entity has to, has to claim ownership, sort of an agent principle type thing? Here, uh, the position in the letter by the Russians is, you know, assume for the sake of argument that your complaint is right, and this was us, uh, you can't sue our military for military activity, which is what this was. I think the better argument is on the commercial tort exception, this wasn't commercial activity because of the nature of the activity. Hacking as part of it, a combined information operation that entailed espionage that then fed into covert action. That's not commercial activity. Well, the, I want to note that the DNC obviously foresaw this. They argued that, well, no, this was theft of our trade secrets. That's that's the way they try to get in there. I think it's baloney. This is not trade secrets. It was very important what was stolen and very wrong that it was stolen, but it wasn't trade secrets. Do you guys agree? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the complexity, if you'll forgive me for sort of tweaking something you said a little bit, the FSIA um, is actually, it's meant to go another direction. Before the FSIA, the default rule was categorical foreign sovereign immunity, right? And so the FSIA is actually meant to open the door, not True. close the door True. to litigation. And so I think the real question is whether- But the default rule remains. You can't do it unless one of the listed exceptions. No, that's right. And I think the question is like, so assume it doesn't matter that these guys are wearing military uniforms, right? Is it possible that as long as it's not like conventional battlefield activity, you could still think of it as a not as a com I mean as a non-commercial tort, right? And I think that's right. Well, that's okay, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. More, more, yeah, more yeah. we're getting there. Let's, yeah. Yeah. let's stay on the commercial tort. There's a point I'm here. I'm jumping ahead to the better argument. So there's an important point to make first, which is that so the Russian scenario is one type of cyber problem we've got where there's uh, information operations. That's not generally the problem we we tend to talk about with the Chinese. With the Chinese, it's commercial espionage. Well, commercial activity. Right. Theft of trade secrets. Right. Those Absolutely. types of arguments would work if you Even decided Even if it was to. a military arm of the right. Chinese. So there's and a shadow being yeah. cast yes. that's yeah. being brought to the surface. Now, yeah. so the DNC's stronger argument is that this was a non-commercial tour, but there's a number of obstacles there that the Russians highlight. Um, so let me try to enumerate some of the key ones. There's a... There's a Statutory text that says that the non-commercial tort exception only comes into play if you can show, I think it's damage to property yep. or th loss of property or damage to property. Um, and that's where, you know, cyber theft is, is tricky that way because you've still got the property. Mm -hmm. Has it been damaged in the right kind of sense because someone else accessed it and then deployed it? There's definitely been injury. But was the property harmed? I, I think my instinct is probably this is trying to, this is not really what the statute's best read to encompass. Secondly, there's there's language about how it, you can't get liability if it's a discretionary act of the state entity. 
Um, and of course, the Russians are saying, like, if we did this, it was certainly a discretionary choice to pursue our foreign policy goals in this. If I did it. If, if we did it. Do you remember if I did it? I have no idea. No. OJ? Oh, did OJ say that? That was a title. I remember of the, the book. glove. That's what I remember. The book was If I Did It. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not when I did it. <laughs> Not at that time I did it, maybe. Um, then the, the, the other piece of it is there's a, a fascinating bit of case law because we actually have a predecessor litigation that was like this where uh, a guy who was an Ethiopian citizen resident in the United States, um, he was the victim of basically Ethiopian state government. Uh, espionage that was harmful to him, he sued and they invoked foreign sovereign immunity and they prevailed in an opinion here in the DC circuit. I don't know if it was a circuit opinion or a district court opinion, but the ruling was that the whole of the tort, including in the cyber context, the actions of those who are making the decision to pursue the operation from outside the United States, even though the, even though the server may be in the US and the individuals in the US and the harms felt in the US, the intent is outside the U.S. and the whole of the tort must occur territorially. And so if that's the rule, and by the way, this suit's not in the D.C. Circuit, it's in, it's in New York. Um, you know, Steve's about to correct me on something. No, I'm uh, not about to correct you, I'm about to, I'm about to update. Okay, oh, good. Okay, so if the Southern District follows the D.C. rule of whole of the tort, that's a third reason why that better argument might still fail. But that's fascinating because that basically means that no no transnational hacking, no transnational exactly. cyber actions would ever fall within the Fortunately, Congress has fixed this. Um, ah. So that I, Bobby and I, when we usually are recording without an audience, there's a lot of sort of like nonverbal communication while recording, like, you, me, you, me. It's like, you, me, you. It's, uh, 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 um, it's like the old Senate Live, right? The what hey, is love. Hey, you, I know you. Right. Um, so this is actually the, this was, we have talked before about the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. Uh, um, of JASTA. JASTA. Um, and, and all of the problems with JASTA. Um, the actual specific amendment to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act that made JASTA so controversial was overruling the whole tort rule. Is that right? Yes. And wow. was getting rid of the Second Circuit and D.C. Circuit's jurisprudence that the whole tort had to occur in the United States. Wow. Okay. Yes. So actually, under JASTA, um, it is no longer the case that to fall within the tort exception of the FSIA, the whole tort has to have occurred here. That was the whole freaking point of the FSIA amendment for foreign sovereign immunity. So that actually sounds useful. And to, to Jen's point, uh, there are a lot of cyber-enabled misdeeds that you might otherwise want there to be liability for. If you assume there should be at all, it, it seems kind of silly that you would say, well, no, because actually part of the hack was you know, partially outside the United States, went through a server in Uganda, so therefore. All this is to say it's going to make for an interesting some interesting case law. Yeah, but I think they'll never get to that, right? So, I mean, right. they'll, they'll note that and say, like, so that's not an issue, but discretionary act. Yep and the nature of the harm I just don't think fit. And, and so it raises an interesting question to my mind whether uh, there should be a further amendment. Do we, as a matter of policy, want there to be litigation and liability for these types of covert action programs? And it may be tempting to say like, yeah, we've got to fight back. Look what happened to us in 2016. Yeah, but this is a two-edged sword. If this is going to be our position, then then we can hardly complain if other courts decide to open the way but towards suing the U.S. government. And that's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what the letter said. They said basically, if you if you do this, then look at all the spying you guys do. Look, you guys engage in this all the time, and, you guys are, and you're going to open up yourself yeah. to to lots of lies. Now, mind you, although you could imagine a rule. I mean, there is a difference between accessing for intelligence-based right. purposes the es versus yeah. accessing and then and then accessing that information and using it in means right. to influence an election. Well, that's a subjective line for a national court to draw. 
But you could you could write legislation in a way that yeah, yeah. that basically yeah. created there, yes there has gonna, to be some well some a damages requirement. I was going to yes. make a different point, which is as JASTA itself shows that we are perfectly happy adopting rules that we don't ever think are going to apply to us um, as a matter of U.S. law for foreign sovereigns. So just I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying like that's yeah. never stopped us before. Right. True. Um, and the other I thought the other cost. interesting <laughs> thing about the letter is they basically the letter said we're we're filing this letter. This is not an appearance in court. We can still choose to default. So in most of these. The likelihood is that this case is just going to go away based on a default judgment ruling. Um, and so the letter was filed without actually making any sort of appearance. There's a longer story here, which I think we'll, we'll save for another time, which is that there's actually some really interesting litigation going on across the board under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act right now. Um, the Supreme Court had a very sort of small piece of this in a case that was argued a week ago um, in uh, Republic of the Sudan versus Harrison. Um, there's a major... There's a cert petition and a cross petition pending in a case called Owens versus Republic. I mean, there's big FSIA stuff coming down the pipeline that could be deeply relevant because a lot of what's happening, uh, separate from the Russia thing, is cases under the state sponsor of terrorism exception are really finally getting fully fleshed out. So last thing on this one, uh, will the State Department enter a suggestion of immunity for Russia or are they going to sit this one out? I think the former. I think they. I think they have way too much of an interest in in the reciprocity, in preserving and looking like they're trying to preserve the reciprocity. Arguments. Oh man, I think people are going to go nuts if they do it. Really? I, I, I mean, that's my prediction. Yeah. Unusual people. <laughs> define, define unusual. No, no. I mean, I mean, like the way things go today. Like, yes, the same people go nuts whenever the president like leaves his umbrella at the top of the stairs of Air Force One. Right? That was pretty weird. Okay. <laughs> but it's the same. It's the usual suspects who are going nuts. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think they're hoping for it. I mean, I, I, the idea of them That's claiming immunity on based on Russia, that just, that to me, that is going I, pretty I far. I bet it didn't yeah. happen. I the usual suspects are going nuts. Also, it's uh, episode title. All right. Although, we're going to see a shakeup in the cabinet soon, so who knows yeah, who's, who's going to be We are already seeing a shakeup in the cabinet. Yes, true. Has somebody been fired today? It's early. To it's early. Be fired. Um, well, hey, listen. Going on what happened yesterday, someone could be fired and find out about it from the conflicting stories in the press about whether or not they had yet been fired, or whether they were even in the building. <laughs> All right. Um, we wanted to talk briefly before we get back to Trumplandia. One last litigation note, which is um, also yesterday. Uh, President Trump announced that he was nominating um, someone we all know, Naomi Rao, um, to fill the vacant seat on the D.C. Circuit um, left by the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh. Um, Naomi was a professor at George Mason. She's, uh, for the last year and a half, been the director of OIRA. Um, so right, she, sort of the she's the head czar. regulation chopper. Is that the technical description? Certainly in this administration. Yeah. Um, yes. So do we, does she, uh, I'm not super familiar with Naomi's prior scholarship, although I know her to be a, a well-regarded scholar. I think she's written a lot of stuff about strong presidential authority. I don't know if she's opined on any of the questions that are most uh, on the front of our minds with respect to Mueller. So we've talked, no. I mean, we've talked a bit about the difference between sort of libertarian um, conservative judges and like establishment Republican conservative judges, right? And how that sort of manifests awkwardly with regard to administrative law. Um, uh -huh. Naomi, Naomi strikes me as more in the libertarian model than in the sort of John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh establishment conservative model, um, which means I think more hostility to the administrative state, um, but not to executive power. The thing is, like on the issues we care about, like in national security law, I mean, as I've said publicly over and over again, I think it would be hard to be much more pro-government than Judge Kavanaugh was when he was a DC Circuit judge. So I'm not sure her confirmation would really move the ball on our stuff that dramatically. 
Maybe, uh, Jen, do you have any familiarity with her prior work that would shed light here? No, I mean, I agree with Steve. I think she falls more in the libertarian yeah. side, but, but, but shouldn't also that, rule in specific cases, I, I don't know. Shouldn't that make her more of a skeptic about uh, unbridled executive power if she's libertarian? It has been my experience um, that there's a certain cohort of libertarians, and there's a senator from Kentucky who I put very high on this list, um, whose libertarianism runs only to U.S. persons. Okay. Well, that's that makes sense. Not everyone has to be cosmopolitan in their libertarianism, but some... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's a serious point though. I, this comes up a lot. Um, back in the the first few years after Snowden, a lot of us were given talks about sort of the 702 and surveillance and all this stuff. And one of the things I like to do when I give those talks was to contrast some of the themes of criticism that were really prevalent from 2013, 14, and 15 to the way it was in the mid-70s when we had a very similar cycle. And one thing that always struck me as a historical comparison matter is that there was a lot of, you know, fear of government abuse, uh, uh, essentialism about privacy, even if it's not abused, we don't want the government knowing this. But in the more recent post-Snowden round, we had much more of a cosmopolitan interest in privacy, concern about the privacy of Germans and Brazilians and others, and, and much less of that was seen back in the 70s. Indeed, that was not really part of the, the major story in the 70s. So it's, it's an interesting thing that's different about our legal and policy culture right. today. But the question is, is it really cosmopolitanism, or is it a reflection of the fact that we recognize that all of our communications are intermingled, so it's just a means of protecting ourselves? I, I think both threads are there. I think there's definitely some people whose it's sort of instrumental in that U.S. person communications will be caught up in that. That's clearly a major part of the 702 debate. But there's definitely a lot of folks who, who uh, are interested either for instrumental reasons themselves or for uh, reasons that go to the essence of it, in the privacy of others as such. Mm -hmm. right. And, and PPD 28 kind of has that right, woven right. into and, it. And it's being rammed down our throats, too, by, your, by our European allies. <laughs> That's true. They yeah. certainly have that. Well, when you put it that way. I mean, not, not <laughs> rammed does not necessarily mean negative. Tell us but, how you really but, feel. No, but, I, but, but, but there's reasons. I mean, some of this, again, I think is a lot of it is instrumental. As right. opposed that's, to that's, some that's sort of intrinsic value. Setting. That's right. It's necessary for diplomatic right. reasons. Right. Can I make and an edit? Ramming oh, can be positive or negative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the listeners, Steve is looking quizzically at the ceiling, pondering whether he's going to disagree. No, no. I, I, I am thinking about, we have talked before about how Hunt for October is such a better book than his movie. And indeed, when, the red, when spoiler alert, the Red October rams the Kanavalov at the end of the book, that is a positive example of ramming. <laughs> I was so wondering where you were going. That's where that. I was going. That is um, awesome. Speaking of where we are going, can I suggest in the interest of time yeah. that maybe we postpone the OLC ISIS uh, airstrike opinion? How about a one-liner on that? Yeah. <laughs> so people are like, I only no. came for that in the pizza. All right. So we'll uh, do it quick. Let's, let's try it this way. Um, Bob, let me ask questions of both of you and see how that goes. Hey, Bobby, what do we know hey, now that we've seen this 2014 OLC opinion about the airstrikes against ISIS that we didn't know before we saw this 2014 OLC opinion about the airstrikes against ISIS? So I think there is something, there is an element of novelty here, but it's probably not what a lot of people thought. So the, the Office of Legal Counsel's 2014 opinion about what was the domestic separation of powers, war powers justification for the early wave of U.S. airstrikes against Islamic State targets in Iraq. Um, what was that foundation? And the, and the memo is Article 2. It's an Article 2. This use of force did not rise to the level of, quote, war, as that phrase is used in the Declare War Clause. Therefore, the equities, the constitutional equities of Congress weren't implicated. 
This is, as Steve's question suggested, a repeat of what we already knew was a, had been Obama administration views thanks to the Libya intervention several years before. It was public then that they took a broad view, notwithstanding whatever rhetoric and trappings and optics the Obama administration had come into office with, they too took a broad view of executive power to use at least certain limited forms of military force. And we had already seen sort of the doctrinal underpinnings played out in the Libya context. They are just cited. Indeed, the OLC opinion has a line up front in its analysis saying, we have our prior opinion on Libya. It says what we believe. We're not going to repeat it all here. We're just going to kind of hit the highlights again. So in that sense, it's a retread and not surprising. What is interesting is when that went down in 2014, when it first started happening, uh, the big question was, is the administration claiming that the AUMF 2001, and then later the 2002 Iraq AUMF. Is the AUMF the authority, or is this another example like Libya of asserting Article II inherent authority to use this degree of kinetic force? Um, and there were some disputes about that, but there were statements filed pursuant or in accordance with the War Powers Resolution that seemed to clearly indicate Article II. Later on that fall, the uh, administration began to clearly take the position, in fact, both AUMFs applied, and you never really heard about Article II again. And there emerged a bit of discussion and debate in some of our geeky circles that f dwell on this endlessly about whether they really were advancing that Article II inherent authority argument all along, or was it, was it just sort of a unclear at first, but it was really AUMF, they just weren't ready to say so publicly. I think Charlie Savage's book, Power Wars, and Charlie's reporting has sometimes emphasized the extent to which maybe it was AUMF all along. This is, and I think this is novel, this is indisputable proof that there was clearly an assertion of Article II authority that will now be added to the laundry list with Libya, Kosovo, um, Korea, of course, don't forget Korea, and all these other things as examples where a lot of kinetic force was used in an overt way with a reasonably large, uh, not footprint, but air print, right. if you will, uh, and, it, and it was done without any congressional authorization at the time. Yeah. Now, now, I like your short answer, by the way. That was one sentence. <laughs> so I think, and I'll, I will be brief, but I think there's three really interesting pieces of this. One, it, it just exemplifies that there's only a ratcheting up in this area. So each time there's a new assertion of Article II authority, no future president says, oh, actually, we're going to shrink wrong. Article <laughs> right. II authority. So it's always a one-way street with respect to this kind of authority. Two, there's a very clear articulation, um, I think even clearer than I've seen before, about the idea that humanitarian intervention plus the request from a foreign government um, is enough, that that alone justifies the use of force absent um, congressional authorization. And then the third thing that I think is, is quite, was quite interesting about this is this discussion that it's not war if it's not prolonged and substantial, exposing military per personnel to risk. Now, we all know that. But the key element that's emphasized over and over, or at least it's emphasized to some degree in this opinion, is the presence of ground troops. And if that's the key, and we think about the future of war, there is such a shrinking um, area of kinetic activity and other actions that actually fall within the definition of war because there is such a limited set of circumstances when we would be engaged in military action that involve ground troops. And there is so much that we can now do without ground troops. Um, so all of this, I think, together just points to the increasing expansion of this Article II, we don't need Congress argument, um, which um, can be um, scary when we think about certain commander-in-chiefs at certain points mm -hmm. in time. So I think, I mean, to me, I mean, my takeaway um, from this is that it really puts the Shariat Airfield memo into better context. 
we add that one first. Um, and I think Jack Goldsmith was the first to point this out publicly, that you can infer from the, yeah. the 2017 OLC memo on the legality of the Sharyat airfield strike that the 2014 memo that we knew existed but we had not hitherto seen yeah. said a lot of the things, like, like that this wasn't a Trumpian argument. This was right. a, as Jen puts it, consistent drift argument that was just being adopted into another new context with the president about whom we have graver concerns. Um, which, just if nothing else, reaffirms that, like, hey, Congress, war powers, you kind of have some. Good luck with that. Not if they don't use them. All uh, right, so... Uh, Trumplandia. Trumplandia. That's the state of mind, you say. Who, who's the attorney general? <laughs> <laughs> well, the attorney, the office of the attorney general is temporarily vacant. Who's I can the, say who's that. the I can say that and be 100% correct. Who wields the power? Well, that's... I mean, is that a legal question or is yeah, that a... Uh, illegally speaking, who... Who legitimately and legally wields the power? So I made a lot of friends on Friday, and I mean a lot of friends, um, when I I had the temerity to write an op-ed suggesting that I thought that the appointment of Attorney General Sessions Chief of Staff Matthew Whitaker, while pretty alarming and troubling and, like, horrifying, might actually be legal. Um, And that that went well. What, what's the basic uh, that Neil Katyal and others have argued that actually maybe it's not George Conway? So there, what, there how does it work? Let me let me unpack this, right? So there there are sort of as, John Yu too. What's that? John Yu says it's on John Yu, right? Oh yeah, John Yu. Someone yeah. said, "How do you feel about being on the other side of John Yu?" I said, "The same way I felt for the last twenty years." <laughs> um, sorry, that was too easy. Okay, um, so the the let me try to unpack this. So the the as in most of these disputes, there's both statutory and constitutional questions. Um, the authority the president has claimed to name Mr. Whitaker as the acting attorney general um, is the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, specifically 5 U.S.C. Section 3345A3, which allows the president, I, I mean, I think it's clear that on its own, the text of the statute says that even if you are a non-Senate confirmed official, there are circumstances where you are allowed to exercise the duties of a principal office on an acting basis. The two big statutory questions are instead whether the FBRA applies in the first place um, because there's a pretty good argument that the DOJ succession statute is a more specific statute and thereby displaces the more general Federal Vacancies Reform Act. And even if the FBRA applies, did Jeff Sessions actually resign? Um, because uh, 5 U.S.C. 3345A says um, the relevant vacancy has to arise from death, disability, resignation, or being otherwise unable to discharge the dues of the office. Pretty good argument that that consciously and intentionally excludes firing, um, because the idea of the FBRA was to give the president power to fill vacancies that he did not create. Um, I think there's no question in this case that the president created this vacancy. Um, That said, my own gut reaction, which has me way out on the ledge, Hi, Ledge, um, is that um, Jeff Sessions did resign. Um, and how do I know that? Because he could have demanded to be fired, um, a la Sally Yates and a la Preet Bharara. And so the fact that he resigned under threat of being fired doesn't mean that he didn't resign. Right. Um, as for the DOJ succession statute in the FBRA, the FBRA is a later statute. Um, Congress, in considering the FBRA, specifically had a pr- proposal to expressly exclude the Justice Department from the scope of the FBRA and rejected it. Um, And there's a cross-reference, not from 1998, but from the earlier version of the Vacancies Act in the DOJ succession statute to what is now the same code provision. Um, So to me, just sort of all things being equal, my gut reaction, wholly apart from how much I can't believe that this is the guy the president picked to be the acting attorney general, is that the statutes allow it. Then we get to the constitutional question. 
Um, and the constitutional question is messy because the Supreme Court, insofar as it's addressed it, has done it once, and it was 120 years ago. Um, and the constitutional question is sort of multi-layered, but the basic version is, is it ever okay for someone who has not been Senate confirmed to exercise on a temporary basis the duties of a principal office? And if so, what are those circumstances? Um, so I think the short version is there's a wide array of support, I think, for the proposition that, yes, there are circumstances where it's okay. These are just not they, right? That's the, I think that's the more common argument against the constitutionality. So for example, if there was literally nobody else who could run the agency, um, right? I think the historical practice has been, and I think most folks, perhaps even Neil Cottrell and George Conway would agree, it's okay in that limited circumstance on a temporary basis to have someone who wasn't Senate confirmed nevertheless be the acting head of the thing. The problem is those circumstances aren't present here because there were other uh, Senate-confirmed officials in DOJ who were available, mm -hmm. and there were certainly other Senate-confirmed officials elsewhere in the executive branch. The question is whether that fact is constitutionally significant. Um, right? The question is whether the appointments clause somehow says, yes, you don't have to be Senate-confirmed if and only if no other Senate-confirmed people are available. Um, and I don't know how you read the text of the appointments clause as opposed to good common sense. Um, to that conclusion. So that's, that's where I end up, which is that like the rule ought to be what everyone wants it to be, but Congress should draw it that way. right? That Cong we, what we are seeing is the result of a very stupidly designed statute that Congress did not think was going to apply in this context, but that Congress did not write in a way where it clearly does not apply in this context. So I think that's all entirely right analytically, and it's not obvious. There's a but coming. There's a, there is. But consistent with your own analysis, there, there's running room if, if whoever is an adjudicator on this issue, if there ever is one, wants to, they can go the other way. It'll be an act, a little bit more of an act of doctrinal creation, but it could be done, and it wouldn't be that shocking if it did happen. So then the question becomes, where and when is this most likely to first get litigated? Who's going to get that bite at the apple? So or is it never going to get litigated? Never. I mean, I, that's, I mean, so I, these, the legal debate is fascinating. It's really important, but I think it largely misses the point here because for two reasons. One, the question is who is standing? Who's going to challenge this? Um, I have an idea. Who? Andrew Miller. I'll explain in a minute. Okay. All right, so maybe. But, but the other problem is that the appointment only lasts for 210 days. So by the time that it's actually challenged and litigated, there's a good chance that it will be completely moot. Well, there's, I mean, there's also the whole point that, like, hey, President Trump, if you really want to make this go away, nominate someone, right? right? I mean, like, that's, you know, there is that. Right. Um, so here's the thing. I mean, Maryland, um, since we're in the D.C. area, right? Hello, Maryland. We actually are currently sitting on land that was once Maryland's. Um, you guys are like, huh, true. Yeah. Um, not Virginia, because we gave that part back. Um, right before the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, abolished the slave trade in the District of Columbia. Um, Miller, get to Miller. Okay, so, um, so Brian Frosch, um, as part of the Maryland lawsuit, um, I, think the, I think the ACA case, um, is basically saying, hey, in order to sue the government, I have to know who the Attorney General is. Mm. My reaction to that is, you have got to be kidding me. Um, but, um, fortunately for all of us, there is an obstreperous um, witness, um, uh, an obstinate witness, a recalcitrant witness, um, who is trying to defy Special Counsel Mueller in order to get Mueller's whole investigation struck down on invalidity grounds that's going to beat everyone to the punch. Um, so in the context of the Mueller investigation, there's a grand jury witness, Andrew Miller, who deliberately chose to be held in contempt in order to provoke a legal ruling over the validity of Mueller's appointment and investigation, and in order to appeal said ruling to the DC Circuit. 
That was argued last Thursday um, to the D.C. Circuit, to a three-judge panel, Judge Srinivasan, Rogers, and Henderson. Um, not a good panel for Andrew Miller. I think I'm not going out on a limb when I say that. Um, in order to answer the constitutional questions Miller has properly presented in his properly taken appeal of his contempt citation about whether the structure of Mueller's investigation is constitutional, the D.C. Circuit's going to have to decide who Mueller's supervisor is. Um, and as of today, Mueller's supervisor, according to the Justice Department, is Acting Attorney General Whitaker. So it is actually now, I think, a fully properly raised part of Andrew Miller's contempt appeal to the D.C. Circuit to decide whether or not Whitaker is duly appointed. And so, in fact, the D.C. Circuit asked for a briefing on that question. And I think, I, you know, uh, so um, I'm not surprised. Um, so um, I say that now that strikes me as a good thing because the D.C. Circuit, I think, first of all, is not a district court. Um, and therefore is in a better position to resolve this rather conclusively. Second, already had briefing, right? And so is, I think, ready to move quickly. So I actually think this will be resolved pretty quickly. I think it's going to be resolved by the D.C. Circuit, not in Brian Frosch's Maryland case, but in Andrew Miller's contempt citation appeal. So they indirectly asked it. If I, if I recall correctly, what they asked is, who is supervising the special counsel? Which gets <laughs> curious. an indirect question. But, but one of, So that case is quite interesting, because in the course of that case, which, as Steve just mentioned, was arguably on Thursday. Um, the challenge is that Mueller is not properly appointed because he did, the appointments clause was not properly followed. And Mike Dreeben, Deputy Solicitor General Mike Dreeben, in support of the position that the special counsel is actually an inferior officer and not a superior officer subject to the appointments clause, um, emphasized the degree to which the special counsel is subject to review and oversight by whomever, either Rosenstein or Whitaker, um, is supervising him, including the ability to both ask for information about investigative steps and preclude those investigative steps when um, the supervisor, whoever it will be, decides that those investigative steps are not warranted. And that, I think, goes back to why this is the, the appointment of Whitaker is so potentially troubling, because even if we don't have a, a Saturday day massacre, there's all kinds of other steps that can be taken that are much quieter that could significantly undermine the special counsel. From the circuit, I don't want to grasp this nettle, and so I'll have briefing, schedule the argument, and count that 210-day that calendar and watch the days fly off and never actually get I, there. I, you know, I respectfully disagree. I think that panel is going to be very happy um, to, in the interest of um, ending for one and all, for all time, um, lingering challenges to the legality of Mueller's investigation and appointment. I think they will be perfectly happy if they, you know, I think the Whitaker appointment could ironically become a casualty, um, right, of that panel saying Mueller has to be supervised, right, like the, of, of getting there through that, right? And so the irony is that Andrew Miller, I think, unintentionally um, might cause this bizarre um, sort of cascading effect. And frankly, I have a hard time if Andrew Miller is the complaining witness. I think the case for cert at that point is very different than if it's someone closer to the president, right? Than if there's a clearer argument that the separation of powers is, is at stake. So. So we were passing notes back and forth because we've imagined that we've gone on too long. That's what was beeping. Ah, uh, no. Come the on. beeping noise before was your phone vibrating. There you go. Uh, <laughs> at least the 
I didn't this know guy. I didn't Man. know such a cool beat. Um, so we were thinking it's been too long. We're going to skip the frivolity and the rest of the items. We're no, 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 the frivolity uh, is. The, the frivolity is going to be the Q&A. So we have the mics. Hopefully you brought some questions. And they could be frivolity questions, frivolous questions. We will answer them all. Um, who Disney. wants to go first? Break the ice. Substantive, personal, technical. Here we go, right here. Let's switch to I do that mic. Switching okay. microphones. We will stall while the microphone is brought over to our first questioner. How, how's the pizza, Steve? Uh, cold. Good. <laughs> I live in Georgia. We're still having an election. <laughs> I hear about that election in Georgia. Yeah, I'm wondering about. Uh, I used to be a state employee in public health, but I'm hearing now that state employees who are working in Brian Kemp's now former office since he resigned six days ago have been acting as an arm of his campaign. Now, when I was a state employee, we were under a lot of um, rules about what we were allowed to do and not allowed to do uh, with respect to any sort of influence of campaign officers, et cetera. And I have no idea where to start as a citizen in that state about trying to raise a complaint about this. Well, it's both federal and I think almost all states, if not all state laws, uh, forbid the use of public employee time and resources on political campaigns. There's, there's, it's certainly the federal rule. And uh, how's if, the Hatch Act doing? Yeah, uh, well, question here. So I, I guess I would say that if that is in fact the case, then it's certainly something that in theory should be investigatable, and it's a crime. Georgia Bureau of Investigation, uh, FBI. Okay, next question. Eric, hello. Uh, well, I guess my first question is, what's your thoughts on Brody Van Regan? Yeah, that's a Mets question, just in oh, case yeah. you guys aren't. <laughs> so Bob, Bobby and I are both selling, I think, is the, yeah, the short sell, version. Sell. Selling, what are you selling? Uh, so my subsequent question, what's your thoughts on the Jim Acosta suit? Jen? So, um, so, the, so just uh, to... to I'm sure everybody in this room knows, but the facts were that Jim Acosta asked a question of the president. The president told him to sit down. He basically kept on talking, and there was an effort um, by an intern to take the <laughs> microphone away, grab that microphone, and he held on to that microphone, which raised um, questions about um, video doctoring. Video doctoring, among other things. Um, and, and after that, the White House revoked his press pass. Um, and so it raises really kind of really important questions about the control of access to information and the ability of the President and the White House to seek to stifle um, unfavorable reporting and to provide all kinds of incentives for people to report and question and kind of bow down to the President in a way that's very contrary to, I think, our First Amendment and the free speech. So there's a claim that was brought. There was a lawsuit that was brought. Um, there's a challenge based on the First Amendment. There's a due process challenge arguing that um, the White House, the white, the, the pass, the, the press pass is a property interest that um, both Acosta and CNN have because it allows them to choose who their reporter is, to send what they deem their best reporter into the White House to engage this kind of, in this kind of reporting. And if it's going to be taken away, there needs to be some sort of process. And there's an Administrative Procedure Act claim as well. Um, I think it's a fascinating suit, and, and we're going to um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, and I think it's really important that um, the suit is brought. So from a First Amendment doctrinal perspective, how do we analyze this? I mean, I've not given this any thought, but obviously it's a particularly unusual, highly, it's not just a public forum scenario. 
it, you could characterize this as a time, place, manner restriction, clearly viewpoint-based. Uh, I would say one way or the other, however they decide to frame this, strict scrutiny is, is the lens through which uh, that would be brought to bear. And it's easy to imagine a court saying that whatever may generally be true about the White House's discretion, which must be ample to decide who gets press passes in general, this particular application could easily uh, go against them. So, I mean, I, I'm limited in what I can say because I am a paid contributor to CNN. Um, I'll just say that um, if folks are interested in, in precedent on this, an interesting case to read is a 1977 DC Circuit case called Cheryl versus Knight, um, which dealt with sort of a similar problem and has a good discussion, I think, of some of the relevant legal considerations. Cool. All right. What else have we got? Megan. Hey, um, I was wondering, did you guys get to read the ACLU report on the true serum that CIA wanted to use on detainees post-September 11th and what your response was to it? If only one of us used to have a job that was like all about detainee rights and human rights enforcement in the context of the war on terrorism. Right. So, I mean, so the... the, the <laughs> right. That's you, by the way. Yeah, that's right. So um, I have not read it in its entirety. Um, the silver lining in that report is that it was not actually used. Um, so there was an effort underway to think about developing the truth serum. It never actually went forward. So I think that's um, a plus on the side of detainee rights. Um, but but obviously concerning that it was even considered and that it went as far as it did. Um, there were other documents that were released as well as part of a big FOIA request that talk about um, that kind of, I think, put into stark relief the degree of torture and abuse that was going on during this time period, including language about waterboarding being a break from um, other types of, um, of prolonged um, uh, putting people in stress positions. And so the idea that water breaking would be um, an acceptable break from other types of um, enhanced interrogation techniques, I think, ought to raise concerns for absolutely everybody. Next question. Adam. Hi, I'm going to go back to Whitaker really quick. Uh, so I, of course, read your article in the New York Times. Um, I, I don't have any, uh, I couldn't find any flaws in your analysis, but I, 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 I can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> um, I do question, um, so of course, I'm sure you know uh, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence in Southwest General where he made many of the same arguments. And then in Lucia last year, or maybe that was earlier this year, um, he and Justice Gorsuch um, concurred, um, citing back to that concurrence in Southwest General. So my question to you is there's at least two um, Supreme Court justices who seem to be at the very least interested in this issue. Mm -hmm. And how do you respond to Justice Thomas and their more specific analysis of the Article 2, Section 2 question about so in his concurring opinion in Southwest General, um, footnote one is the part where Justice Thomas specifically talks about the problem of an acting principal officer. Um, and what's really interesting to me about footnote one is what he doesn't say. So Justice Thomas um, refers to Eaton, the 1898 case about the guy in Siam. Um, and instead of saying he thinks that was wrongly decided, which I think you know is the is what you have to think to have the Katyal Conway position. Um, he says this case, um, the the Southwest General case, where the guy in question had been serving as acting general counsel of the NLRB for over three years, 
he said, is so easily distinguishable from that one because the general counsel only serves a four-year term, and no one can tell me that over three years of a four-year term is temporary. Um, so I don't know that Justice Thomas's Southwest General Concurrence goes all the way to answering the question the way it's been portrayed publicly. It's not to say he wouldn't come out, you know, when pushed, and it's not to say he wouldn't just say, let's overrule Eaton. But here's the problem, and just to, to step back from Whitaker for a second, as a matter of constitutional law, the hard question is whether an acting principal officer is in fact a principal officer. Um, or whether you believe there are at least some circumstances where an acting principal officer is allowed to not be a principal officer. Um, that is, as, as sort of succinctly as possible, the real con law fight. And then if the answer to the latter is yes, there are some circumstances where I'm willing to have a non-principal officer temporarily exercise these duties, then the question is, are those circumstances circumscribed by the Article 2? Or are the circumstances left to the discretion of Congress to define? Um, and I don't know the answer to that question. Um, will the court find that a case worth taking? Sure. I just think the imper if the D.C. Circuit says um, the appointment is okay, I think the court might be like, all right, fine, we're good. Um, if the D.C. Circuit throws it out and the Solicitor General asks the Supreme Court, um, you know, I think the court might take it. I just don't think they're going to want to take it in the context of the Mueller investigation. Um, right? Like, if I'm John Roberts, I don't want to decide whether the acting attorney general is validly appointed in a case that's really about whether the special counsel is validly appointed. So that's where I think the politics of certiorari, as opposed to the merits of the dispute, get very complicated. You should take maybe one more. Two more? Two more. We have time. Yeah. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep. Um, you were talking about Nishiri and the military commissions and their seemingly never-ending nature. And... Um, uh, what feels like a century ago, in one of the many iterations of Law Rule, Justice Kavanaugh um, talked about how some of these questions, these statutory and constitutional questions, really just need resolving. And I'm wondering Footnote if you one. think his appointment to the court could change the court's appetite in granting cert in some of these cases if they arise. So, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think footnote one of then Judge Kavanaugh's concurrence in Albalul 4. Um, right, AKA the most recent en banc DC Circuit decision, um, the October 2016 en banc decision, is really interesting and really worth reading. He certainly says he thinks it's long past time for these things to be resolved. Um, the, even if he were to take that view with him to the Supreme Court, the problem is he's recused. Um, in Balul, for sure, if that issue ever comes back, he's recused in Nishiri because he was on a panel that decided early in the f early in what became al-Nashiri 1, um, when Nashiri asked for an administrative stay, he was on a panel and actually wrote a dissent about how he didn't think the D.C. Circuit had jurisdiction to issue an administrative stay. Um, so if it's Nashiri, he won't be able to participate because he was a judge on the case in the lower courts. Um, and the only other case that's going to get there anytime soon is the 9-11 case, which I think, like Mueller, the justices are not going to want to touch with a 10-foot pole. So I think, yes, there will be an appetite for the court to do more with the commissions, especially if you get divisions within the D.C. Circuit once the D.C. Circuit starts dealing with the merits. I just don't know which case is going to provide the right frame for the justices to do that, given that I think, you know, Nishiri gets there with a 4-4 court. Um, and then what, what, why that matters is because the D.C. Circuit can also count to nine. 
Um, and the DC Circuit's going to know that on this jury, they're going to have the last word on probably just about everything. So, you know, I, I think the, the more interesting question to me in the short term is, what's the DC Circuit going to do? Um, the Supreme Court, I think, knows it's eventually going to have to do something, but maybe is hoping the DC Circuit will take them off the hook. One more? And eventually, yeah. it could be a long time. Eventually, it could be. I mean, so, you know, in... In Nashiri 2, where the D.C. Circuit said, we're going to abstain from deciding this jurisdictional challenge to whether he can be tried by a military commission in the first place until after his post-conviction appeal, the majority opinion by Judge Griffith sort of poo-poos the argument that Nashiri's lawyers had made that the direct appeal might not be till 2024. Um, and in the it's opinion, Judge Griffith literally says, you know, there's no reason to believe that that's going to be true. I now agree with him. Right? right exactly. I now completely agree with him. There's no reason to believe that the direct appeal is going to reach the D.C. Circuit in 2024. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So maybe time for one more, but we also need to give away the shirt. Yes. Does, does anyone have a question or a great episode title? Well, let's do the question first, and then we'll do, quickly do episode title round robin. Yeah. I was just curious to have any update on the outlook for Larry, given that Dana was just denied cert yesterday. Ooh, nerdy military justice question. Yeah. So, um... Larrabee is the pending cert petition on which I'm counsel of record and therefore impossibly biased. You guys are like, you are biased on everything, so that's not new. Um, that is challenging whether it's constitutional for the military to court-martial retired service members for offenses committed after they've retired. Um, the case where the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals first reached the holding that we are challenging in Larrabee is this case called Dinger. Um, and the Supreme Court yesterday denied certain Dinger. The petition in Dinger did not raise the jurisdictional, the constitutional jurisdictional question we're raising in Larrabee, it raised a much more specific constitutional question about how the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces had chosen to overrule its own precedents. Um, I'm, you know, I, I would have liked the court to have taken that case, personal opinion, um, but the court never so much has asked the Solicitor General to even respond to that petition, whereas the court has asked the SG to respond to our petition in Larrabee. So I'm not sure the denial in Dinger is going to really bear on Larrabee one way or the other. Um, I think the real question for how the court handles Larrabee is what the SG says in its now ordered response, uh, which is due December 3rd. All right, friends. Uh, we'll do a lighting round of episode suggestions. Just shout them out. Eric. Uh, episode 100, live from Trumplandia, shrug emoji. <laughs> live from Trumplandia, shrug emoji. <laughs> live from Trumplandia. Okay. In the back, yeah. Out on a limb in D.C. Out on a limb in D.C. Out on a limb. This is good. Yeah. I have two. One's Seth. I think better. Yeah. Uh, one is, one is uh, or two versions of one also. Uh, who's the AG uh -huh. and who wields the power? That's the one, two versions of that one. And the other one is there will be oversight, exclamation mark. There will be oversight. There will like be there oversight. will be blood. Yeah. <laughs> or like instead of who's the AG, who's your, who's your AG? Trump landed it if I did it. Trump landed it if I did it. This is Trump landed This is Trumplandia. That's a lot of Trumplandia. Yeah. yeah. Is mentioning Doe v. Mattis worth a t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to squeeze it back in, and he rejected it. <laughs> I, I, this is tough, man. We got Ryan. Uh, Ramming can be a good thing. <laughs> Ramming? Ram <laughs> I mean, I, I'm worried about that one. It makes me a little nervous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing that now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> honorable mention. Honorable uh, mention. Yeah. All right, should we uh, should we consult? Uh, whisper, 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 whisper. I think that one. Oh, you're on the other side or that one? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. If I did it. 
Okay. So who who is Trumplandia if I did it? T-shirt for you, sir. Well, that concludes the, the um, perhaps technically challenged first live episode of the National Guild Podcast. Thank you to Jen Daskal and American University of Washington College of Law for hosting us. Um, thanks to the National Security Law Brief for all you guys, uh, all your efforts in putting this together. Thanks to all of you for coming. And if you're listening at home, um, how did you make it through the audio challenged version of this? I don't know, but I'm very proud of you. So, um, Bobby's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. Stay safe out there. Adios. At Jen Daskal. At Jen Daskal. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I got nothing.